Hi, Behind the Idea listeners. You're tuned in to the first episode of our four-part mini-series on Amazon.com, ticker symbol AMZN. Across these four episodes, we're going to bring in some really heavy hitters as guests, and we're super excited. We're going to take a super geeky dive into Amazon's financial statements. We're going to explore Amazon's business strategy and competitive advantage. Daniel, what else are we going to do? We're also going to look at the business itself. We're going to look at Jeff Bezos and whether the company has key man risk around his legendary polymath leadership of the company. We're going to talk regulatory risk too, and whether the company's too big to fail, either as far as the government is concerned or as far as they themselves are going to be concerned. And of course, we're going to talk about the valuation and make absolutely zero conclusions about whether the company is a buyer or a sell. The behind the idea way. Yeah. So it's our pleasure to kick off the Amazon miniseries with a conversation with Brad Stone. He's the author of The Everything Store, which is the complete authoritative biography of Amazon, the company. And he's also an editor at Bloomberg Technology. So thank you, Brad, for joining us. We did this series in honor of Cyber Monday, Black Friday, and Amazon's tremendous impact on those two components of the holiday season. So from me and Daniel, happy early Thanksgiving. It's our pleasure to deliver this Amazon series as a gift to you. Enjoy. Gobble, gobble. Welcome to Behind the Idea, the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. We're starting our four-part series on Amazon, where we're looking at the retail giant through a number of different angles to try to understand its role in our economy, where it might be headed as a stock, and just kind of pick apart this huge company that seems to be everywhere in our lives. So the two two things that we kind of wanted to break down from the business end were any key man risk related to Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of the company, and also... Can Amazon get too big? Those are kind of two big questions that occur to us when we review the company. And so to do that, we're starting off, we're speaking with Brad Stone, who is the author of The Everything Store, which is basically the book on Amazon. He's also recently wrote an article for Business and Bloomberg on the company and its India expansion oversees their uh, Amazon coverage in general. So Brad, welcome on Behind the Idea. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. So let's just start. Basically, Everything Store came out in 2013. How has the company sort of evolved in the time since? Yeah, wow. You know, it does seem it's been almost exactly five years, actually. And, I, and then I updated the book in 2014. So I added another chapter. And then this year, I put a uh, 
a little epilogue or a little uh, prologue on it for the fifth edition. But but you're right. I mean, it's an almost completely different company. I mean, you can, you think about back in 2013 in the fall when the book came out, the market cap was less than $200 billion, right? It's $750 billion today after, you know, briefly touching a trillion dollars after this latest market correction. It was, you know, it was a really an online store only then now it's got you know hundreds of wall of uh, whole foods physical stores in addition to amazon go and, and bookstores you know in terms of devices it was it was, it was it had done the kindle and was experimenting with the kindle fire tablets now you know it's pr- it's propagated alexa devices so it's created a speech platform and it's it's has 600,000 employees when i wrote the book it was 150,000 so it's like I, I kind of think of it now as the everything company. You know, I wrote a book about the everything store. It's a it's a multiple of where it was back then. Is it is that t- in your view an evolution? Is it just a sort of natural progression from where they were, or did did something change where they really had to start extending into all these different areas? Like you said, store to company. Yeah, I mean, I think. In, in some ways, yes, it was a natural evolution. You know, in their pursuit of being the everything store, you know, they came upon some product categories that, uh, you know, that where their experimentation led them to the conclusion that physical assets were necessary. I think groceries is the big example of that. You know, 10 years of experimentation with Amazon Fresh, leading them to believe that, you know, the supply chain mechanics of storing perishables is tricky and people want to want to shop in person and so they could own a grocery store but then in other respects i think this is not a natural evolution that they're that they're, that it's a result of you know the invention of the company and in particular bezos's restless mind you know that alexa wasn't a, an outgrowth really of anything they were doing you know maybe to some extent that you know they were tinkering around with speech when they thought they were going to have a hit phone but you know it was jeff coming to the conclusion that this voice stuff could be its own computing platform and in that respect what they have done so successfully is create entirely separate businesses with their own very promising growth trajectories. That brings up something for me. The experimentation concept, it, it connotes this kind of randomness. And so I wanted to hear from you whether you think that there's a, how we should think about Amazon's directions. It's If it's experimental, that sort of suggests that there's some chaotic element there, but there also seem to be patterns. Are we reading patterns into what's basically just a series of independent processes? Or how do you consider what's been successful at Amazon in that context? And no, I mean, I think, I think, you know, from my vantage point, it's pretty organized, um, you know, that they've got these processes in terms of, you know, the, how they, how they kind of conduct their year that repeat, but, you know, it, amidst the chaos is this idea that, you know, ideas come from all places and that they should plant a lot of new things and try them out. And, you know, they're also a company that just doesn't seem to mind, uh, you know, redirecting capital from uh, the bottom line into new projects. And so they've done that over the course of almost their history. I mean, certainly in the last 10 years, you know, starting with AWS and, and, and the Kindle and now leading to all sorts of things like drones and, you know, probably a lot of stuff we don't know about. So, no, I don't think it's chaos. And for a lot of companies, we, we might say, God, look, they're trying so many things, they're getting away from their core. But I don't know. It seems to me that Amazon has sort of redefined its core from online selling to, you know, to very, you know, expanded 
very broadly and defined it broadly. And now they can pretty much do everything and their investors mostly seem comfortable with it. When one of the things that we now see happening that I think is at least in terms of the market perception and the world perception around Amazon versus five years ago, five years ago, I think there was still some question over Amazon and whether or not it would, nobody doubted it would be successful, but like, would it grow into its valuation? Would it continue to really gain share, et cetera? I think there was more questions. And now you just need a rumor to come out that Amazon is going into banking or Amazon is going into healthcare or Amazon is going into pharmacies or, you know, you could start making stuff up, cannabis, whatever. And Amazon doesn't really move because it's such a huge company, but every competitor in that space seems to lose five or 10% just from the mere hint that Amazon might compete with them. Do you, any thoughts on that? Is that an overreaction? Is the market sort of giving too much credit to Amazon at this point? Yeah, it's, it is sort of funny when Amazon will make a deal buying PillPack or Whole Foods. And then in the, in the day that you know their stock is rewarded by an increase or their, or their rival stock is punished by a decrease of values that exceed the actual purchase price. So it's a good question. I mean, I think in some cases, yes, it's, it's overdone, um, you know, that these are big markets with room for a lot of players, you know, groceries, you know, is 500 or 600 billion. And, you know, little tiny Whole Foods isn't going to make a difference, you know, right away at least and probably not even in the long term. But where I think it's not overdone, is the idea that Amazon's entrance into your category means that all these businesses are going are, are gonna to have to change the way they do business. They're going to have to invest and probably start to think about how to improve the customer experience. I mean, as an example, you know, grocery stores that haven't evolved all that much since like I was a kid. You know, you still find the milk at the back and wait at the line. And yeah, they try some stuff at the point of sale, but not, you know, the experience isn't much different. Well, you know, Amazon's only old, owned Whole Foods for a year, but think, think, you know, let's think in two or three years when they bring that Amazon Go checkout technology into a corner of Whole Foods so you can take stuff and walk out. That's the kind of thing, you know, Amazon's known for. They may not be successful, but what it means for all these companies is that they probably have to start to invest in their businesses too, in the same way that Walmart has had to raise its game and really, I think, successfully has to compete with Amazon. So, you know, maybe what, where some of the stock action is justified is the idea that Amazon's entrance means that things are going to change and companies need to start to invest in their business in a way that maybe historically they never did. So is there is there a limit then to what Amazon can do in your view? Like, is there, a, is there anything that would keep them from given that sort of approach that willingness to invest and the good credit that they have with investors. Is there any reason that they couldn't continue to expand and kind of continue to attack new industries for lack of a better term? Well, I mean, yeah, I think there's some limits, you know, number one, all of big tech right now is under a microscope. And there, I do think that there's a question when it comes to like big acquisitions and those are not the kinds that amazon has historically done but you know i'm talking about you know a google buying youtube type of acquisition even arguably amazon buying a company like whole foods today might get a, a deeper look just because you know the the current administration the skepticism towards amazon everything happening in europe i think ultimately those kinds of acquisitions are going to be really scrutinized. And then I think, you know, I think there's going to be increased attention to the kind of self-dealing 
that Amazon does. So in the same way that Google got dinged in Europe for you know bundling the Play Store in with Android and apps in with Android, I think you know I do think regulators are going to start to look at how Amazon you know places white label you know its own private label goods prominently on its website and its and its search results. How those private label goods show up in the advertising areas of Amazon. How Alexa might suggest an Amazon type product, an Amazon labeled product, you know, if you're if you're trying to buy an Alexa. So I think, you know, it's, it hasn't happened yet. And Amazon is arguably a small player in retail still. But I think that's the kind of uh, thing that the uh, regulators ultimately are going to be looking at. Kind of piggybacking on that self-dealing concept and criticism of Amazon or regulatory attention. One narrative that continues sort of slower than I first expected was the HQ2 process. And I'm curious your thoughts about the kind of game that Amazon is playing between sort of different cities and its own interests and who's really going to benefit. What do you think Amazon's up to with H2Q? And what do you think about that? So, you know, uh, first we have to marvel at Amazon's dexterity with this announcement. Like here they have uh, turned the search for more office space into a two-year attention-grabbing, headline-grabbing endeavor with and, and basically, you know, bent cities around North America to, to its will. Um, and look, you know, it's, it's well-timed. Cities are looking for jobs. Amazon is promising 50,000 of them and billions of dollars in construction and taxes. You know, it, it made a ton of news in the last holiday cycle when it announced this search. I expect we're going to get a resolution very soon. And that means that Amazon will be on everyone's lips heading into this holiday season. And look, I mean, you know, they do, they do these things very well. And, and like they, you know, when there were some questions about the impact Amazon was having in Seattle, suddenly they have all these cities lining up, you know, New Jersey offering $7 billion in tax breaks, uh, Newark, uh, Maryland offering $6, $6 billion, And, you know, and like really clarifying the extent to which other cities want Amazon. So I, you know, it seems like, it seems like a, it's been a pretty smart endeavor. And now, of course, everyone thinks Arlington's going to get it, and and they'll and Amazon will want to be in DC. But you never know. I mean, Amazon could could surprise everyone. Wow, that <laughs> there's just always a second level there with the PR around the announcement. If you're working for a mayor's office, what do you tell them as they're kind of approaching Amazon? Do you have warnings for them, or are you pro courtship? Who, who is them? Like your development folks? Yeah, you're, I guess, yeah, the, just the city. What's in the interest of the city right. from the perspective of the city? Well, absolutely. So it's, it's jobs, you know, it's, you know, thousands of uh, high paying jobs occupied by technical people, entrepreneurial people who, who are then going to go on after they spend time on Amazon to go and create startups ar- around Amazon. And it's a, it's a, injection of adrenaline into a local economy and so i think you know you you pursue it hard um but in addition you you probably you know you think thoughtfully about how you know how you're organizing your city the strain that it's going to put on public transportation and highways the relationship of this you know whatever property you want to develop to the airport and making sure that you're setting amazon up to be for this uh, headquarters to be an international hub but i think you know if if you want to be a modern city uh, these days, you need th- these, those kinds of employees. And so Amazon, 
you know, has become the embodiment of kind of what it means uh, to be, you know, a 21st century American city. I, I'm curious because I, I, I'm thinking it's easy to look at Amazon skeptically or cynically about all this too. Like, like we're taught, there's sort of this, they're so smart at how they go about it, but also they are calculating. And I think about that from a regulatory perspective, whether it's, get you know, this delivering jobs, but also it will benefit Amazon in a number of ways and they're getting tax breaks offered and so forth or the, the PR around that. But I'm even thinking what you were talking about a little bit earlier, as far as the tech companies under scrutiny, Amazon specifically, the president has a specific uh, crosshairs on them. And I'm thinking they, they've, the company from inception has always been pretty calculating. They moved to what they started in Washington because there wasn't, sales tax there. They, even the recent minimum wage hike, it didn't take long for the idea to get out that actually they, that's a negative because they're just be able to do that at crushing the competitors or whatever. There's a lot of sort of layers to how they do it. Is there, what's, do you have a sense of the sort of negatives of this for, for the economy at large and or whether or not there's anything that's going to is anything going to change you said regulators are going to be watching things but amazon does seem to out outthink the regulators to some degree so like what i guess i what do you think about this sort of effect overall on the economy and then also is there anything if there are negatives is there anything that's going to be done about it either way right well i think a lot of cities are you know looking at the the tax breaks they give companies to move there and probably resent a little bit that they are pitted against each other in these you know global no holds barred competitions i mean and this is an age-old practice you know i grew up in cleveland ohio uh, and, you know, the city didn't do that. And as I was growing up, one by one, they kind of lost all the big Fortune 500 companies to cities that were giving them tax breaks. And, you know, it's the same. We see it in, with local sports teams and things, the, the incentives and the tax breaks and the con- public contributions to build things like stadiums. So, yeah, I think the risk maybe is that there's a sort of bubbling resentment, a quiet resentment that then manifests itself in what is a growing backlash against these companies. We still don't know where that's going, but certainly the last two years it's been visceral. You know, but I think right now it, that stuff is overshadowed by simply the eagerness for all these cities like Columbus and Newark, you know, and, you know, part, parts of Maryland and, and Virginia where, you know, they just, they just want the injection. And then, yes, and, and then it's going to be time to like take stock and suddenly the traffic is bad and maybe the, you know, if the economic impact, if the economic impact is less than anticipated, then we might see some blowback. You always want that, that hit, don't you? One, one last sort of general question on Amazon is sort of, because I was thinking of something that I believe you used this phrase in your book was this idea of tendrils of chaos as something that Amazon is constantly hacking at constantly fighting it i i know that in you know we took we mike and i actually use that between ourselves talking about our company which is infinitely smaller it seems than amazon and i so i can only imagine how do you from the reporting you've done or what you've seen like how does is that a risk at all to amazon as it gets this big we've talked about just you know they're they're good at what they do and it's still an extension of who amazon is but is there any risk to at some point ignore the regulatory aspect that they're just 
it becomes unwieldy to run this as one company to the point where it may even be inefficient. Is that what's your observation? There? Well, I guess a couple of things. You know, one, I would say, you know, chaos as I kind of defined it in the book was the outgrowth of trying to centralize inventory and bring people in to pick it from shelves and pack it and ship it, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people over the holidays and. Rather than being a risk, I think that's a competitive moat. I mean, this is what Amazon solved almost 10 years ago and now continues to scale. And this is the advantage they have, that they've kind of tamed the chaos in these fulfillment centers. And so, no, I don't think that's a risk. I think they now have systems and automation in place and and uh, have, have proven themselves probably since the introduction of Prime and fulfillment by Amazon as being kind of uniquely able to 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 tame the chaos and scale their supply chains. So no, I mean I think that traditional kind of chaos is is has been solved. And then I guess maybe you're asking about like a company that does so much and bundled under one roof and I would say, you know, and that gets into something that you alluded to at the beginning of the podcast which is you know, succession planning and key man risk, because that to me, the question is like, does this work without Jeff, without a a guy who's uniquely suited to run both a retail company and an online marketplace and a technology invention lab and and an enterprise cloud services company. And, And that's his skill. And he can do that because he's a, he's a G he's a polymath genius and he's got great people working under him but you know the question is could, could, could they yoke it all together in the same way he does yeah that's a, you basically scooped us on our next sort of series of questions which is about <laughs> and the, i don't know the i don't know the answer so, to it okay we, we, we won't know but let's explore a little bit our initial podcast on amazon touched on the shareholder letter which we read as sort of revelatory about the peculiarities of Bezos and his philosophy and also some of his eccentricities. So I want to get into a little bit more what you see as these key advantages that he has and these unique attributes that make him better equipped potentially than anyone else to run Amazon. You said polymath genius. What What does that mean to you and what else about Bezos is so special? You know, I think it's his ability to um, to to go into a meeting about AWS and you know help help them you know with their plan to you know to to stay ahead of Microsoft and Google and to define the next generation of services that customers might want, and then in the very same day probably walk into a a meeting with uh, the Amazon marketplace and to, you know, help describe or identify the defects in the system that caters to thousands and thousands of, of, of retailers competing for sale and yet satisfy the customer. Just like, he, I mean, it, it seems to me that he is, you know, well-versed in so many of these businesses and, and, uh, and then also as the founder and, and, and the CEO has the credibility to motivate people. Uh, to bring out the best work and employees, you know, across the company. And that's a magic that a founder has that maybe the successor doesn't. I mean, in the case of Apple and Tim Cook, he certainly has risen to the occasion and proved his na- the naysayers wrong. And, you know, at some point, probably no time soon, but at, one, you know, at some point, certainly, you know, that, that responsibility is going to fall to someone else. I think what you described there is sort of, that calls to mind two separate things. One is 
the ability to take in and understand a broad variety of information, to go into a series of different meetings and know what everybody's talking about. But then there's a second part of that, which is making good decisions with that information. What do you think, is there anything unique about Bezos' decision process or strategic philosophy that's important? If so, what is it? He mentions handstands in the shareholder letter, but maybe you can give some additional insight about what, what he's getting yeah. at. Right. Well, now you're, you're, you're calling into question my recollection of the last shareholder letter. But I do remember him saying, and maybe it was in an interview, that he sees his job as just making a few high quality decisions every day. And, you know, this is going to sound trite, but like it comes down, it sometimes it comes down to just having like an intuition and being right about things, you know, being right about the future of technology. So he made an enormous bet about speech recognition and it's, you know, the potential to be a computing platform. And I think the market is proving that right. He's made some choices. He's made some decisions that haven't been proven right. Like, you know, he thought that Amazon was in a position to introduce a phone, which it clearly was not. But I think, you know, the, it, what it comes down to is like the balance of decision making. He's been right more often than not. And I think you, you, you trace a lot of Amazon's big new businesses to decisions that he made sometimes even in, in like the privacy of his own home, like the, you know, Amazon's foray into cloud services, you know, something that they decided to do because, you know, he was following kind of a string of logic and reading some books at the time and thinking about the troubles that the developers at his own company were having getting resources. And, and he extrapolated that into, well, you know, maybe we need a, a set of enterprise services that work a little differently, that you can rent uh, almost like electricity from an, a utility. And, and that's a leap of logic and a creativity that, you know, isn't common to CEOs or even entrepreneurs. You know, it's the creativity of an inventor. And I think that's what he brings uh, to Amazon. And we've seen it again and again over time and what makes him so unique. What do you think the biggest mistake that he's made it has been has it was it the phone or anything else stand out to you over the years oh good question let's see what is his i think i'm, I'm gonna say maybe maybe the misadventure in china now you know the question is would china have ever let amazon succeed certainly they didn't like google or facebook of course amazon isn't a, a marketplace for free expression so they didn't have that problem uh but under investing in china you know, leaving aside an enormous market opportunity and and allowing Alibaba, which came along much later, uh, to dominate. That was certainly a big missed opportunity. Things like the Fire Phone, you know, at least in terms of the financial impact, seem kind of small in contrast. If if I had more time to think, I might come up with something else. But I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna place my bet on that one as being the biggest. Okay. I guess I'll go right to then, since you just, is India sort of their makeup? Is India the, ma the reason? <laughs> the make-do, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's the second largest company. It's it's a decentralized retail economy. They they you know the competitor originally was a startup with you know whose momentum had stalled and they came in with guns blazing. Now you know Walmart bought that startup Flipkart and now it's a gunfight. But I think you know they're they're investing big in India because they don't they want to avoid the mistakes of the past. Is there? I guess the other India question I had was that you 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 had something in the that article about. 
you know, the first hundred million, and obviously we're talking about huge scale here, but the first hundred million in India is the easiest to get online. It's the next hundred million that are really hard. And what occurred to me there was that that next hundred million is not going to be spending a lot online. And so you're, it felt a little bit, and I, you know, you had a colorful anecdote about Jeff wanting to do a big presentation on an elephant and that sort of thing. But is there a little bit of fighting the last war and a little bit of an ego grab here? Or do you think Amazon views this? I I don't want to diminish the potential of India, but it also seems like a long way away from being a true profit generator. Is that, how are they, how does that fit into the mission in that respect? Right. Yeah. These are, that's a good question. And, and we should say, we're talking about a, a cover story I did for Business Week a couple of weeks ago about Amazon and Walmart fighting it out in India. And I think, you know, you, you raise a good question. I think, as with all like developing countries, there are uh, countries within the country, you know, there's this small slice of cosmopolitan users in, uh, you know, in Delhi or Bangalore, or Bombay, and, and they are almost indistinguishable from consumers in the West, and they've got smartphones. And, and those are the, the, the customers that probably signed up for Amazon Prime. And then the next, you know, the next set is in our tier two cities, and they, they've gotten their first smartphone. And but maybe they're paid in cash, uh, or maybe they're just starting to buy online. And I think that's also a big opportunity because you know these people have been watching TV and been immersed in uh, mainstream culture and consumerism for decades, and they're probably ready to buy differently. And and you know the retail economy in India never modernized. There were never department stores or malls uh, or chains. It's very decentralized, a lot of mom and pop shops with very limited selection and not great customer service. So I think uh, that's, you know, that's probably what Amazon's looking at. And then, and then, yeah, and then there are tier three cities and the rural people. I mean, you know, the poverty question in India is a, is a very hard one. And that's way down the line. And, and I'm sure Amazon and Walmart aren't, aren't looking at that yet. Yeah, they want to, they want to maybe uh, plant some seeds there, and they've got different programs, and we write about them to get people buying online. But these are the people's people that you know need to get phones first and get internet access before they you know they can ever be uh, profitable online buyers. Okay, interesting. How how involved is Bezos with the company day to day from your from what you're seeing? Because he's he seems to be speaking publicly quite a bit now. He owns the Washington Post. He has Blue Origin, the space rocket company. He, he, you know, he, again, very impressive man, but it also seems like at some point his eye has to wander a little bit. How, how is he still plugged in or is it really just down to a few decisions each? Or how, how would you describe his involvement at this stage? My impression is that he is absolutely as involved as, as he, as he always has been. I think he takes one day a week uh, to go work at Blue Origin. He is the CEO of this private space company. Uh, but other than that, my, my sense is he's engaged, you know, and he's still emailing at all hours and, you know, and, and there, there are a couple of projects he takes intense personal interest in. I think often those tend to come out of the lab 126 hardware lab. So new products, new devices. I think you know he's he's probably pretty uh, involved with AWS. Certainly with Alexa, you know he's been driving that strategy. And look, I mean, I think you know this is his life's work. Got it. Okay. So I wanted to hit a couple more questions. My first is just 
What's the most important misperception, especially among investors, about Amazon? What do people need to know that they don't understand, to your mind? I, I don't know. I think it's pretty well understood. Now, we're, we're 23 years into this company. You know, the, the ride has been volatile. I mean, particularly lately where, you know, Amazon touched a trillion dollars of market cap and has now, you know, lost uh, about a quarter of it. But look, I think that the long-term investors know that, you know, this is a company that takes a lot of risks. It's not going to turn uh, return cash to investors in the form of a dividend that reinvests in new businesses, that keeps trying new things, and 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 that doesn't isn't afraid to, uh, you know, to skunk a quarter or a series of quarters, you know, to reinvest in the business. You know, if they decide tomorrow that they need, alongside every fulfillment center in the world, a new kind of sortation center, um, or if they decide they can't depend on the U.S. Postal Service or FedEx or UPS anymore, and they need to put vans everywhere. They're going to do it, you know, and that and that's going to be very deleterious to, to earnings. So, but I think that's pretty well understood, at least for the faithful investors that have been there, that read the original shareholder letter, and that know how Bezos operates. I mean, if anything, I would say maybe what's poorly understood by people that don't follow it is how predictable it is. You know, that in 1998, Jeff put out the first shareholder letter, and like Babe Ruth, you know, pointing his bat in the stands, he, he kind of called his shot. And he said, this is how I'm going to run the company. And then he's basically done that relentlessly and faithfully ever since. So if anything, it's kind of boring. And when, you know, and when these stock fluctuations happen, you know, to me, it seems like kind of more of the same, some short termism, but you know, Amazon's on a decades long trajectory, and they're not going to change how they run the business. That's a good insight. I think that might reflect a little bit one there's maybe a shadow of all that, which is that someone was on Twitter the other day pointing out the drawdowns in Amazon shares, and they are incredibly painful. So if the consensus is kind of in on this bullish, well-understood story, we'll have to wait and see uh, how people do if there's ever a downturn there. I think people will be interested in any particular insights you have about Bezos as a person, just because he seems like this great genius polymath person, but there's got to be some humanity in there as well. So I wonder what you would convey to our listeners about him as a man, as a person, just his personality and, and who he is. Yeah, well, I mean, I should say, you know, it's been it's been a couple of years since I, I've seen him and and uh, and since I published the book. And, you know, I do I do get the sense from just watching him pretty, pretty uh, loyally, you know, that he he like continues to scale his interests and, you know, and, and like the way in which he's grown into a newspaper publisher as, you know, via the ownership of the Washington Post has kind of been amazing to watch. You know, he wasn't he, he wasn't historically like that involved in in politics or you know, international events. And of course, ownership of the post has required him to do that. But look, I mean, as a person, you know, he's a he's a big old nerd. I'll say that <laughs> like, you know, he, he loves uh, science fiction. And he seems like he's an avid science fiction reader. You know, he's drawn to like, you know, the National Air and Space Museum and, you know, has, has invested a lot of money in recovering, you know, parts from the ocean uh, from 
from old rockets in the space program. You know, he's got a huge collection of space memorabilia, Blue Origin headquarters. And he's also someone with like, you know, not only a vision for Amazon, but a vision for humanity that that's, that's really idiosyncratic. Like this idea that, you know, millions and millions of people will be living and working in space and we can, you know, take the heavy industry off of, off of the earth and turn and turn the planet into something more habitable. I mean, there, there's even a, a pretty clear distinction between Elon Musk's vision for space travel of going to Mars. You know, Jeff doesn't believe that we should really necessarily, you know, get in a rocket and go visit another planet. He thinks earth is the best planet. And so in a way, you know, he's one of those rare business leaders who also has a vision, you know, for the long-term health of, of humanity. I think to me, that's admirable, particularly as like, you know, we see report after report about the effects of climate change. So it's interesting. I think like in, you know, if we, you know, he, he might be remembered in the large part for Blue Origin and, and for some of his efforts to, uh, to help, hum, you know, humanity with its long-term problems. Yeah, that that's, I mean, it's obvious that he's had big vision all along. It's interesting that the Blue Origin stuff started in 2000. So he's been thinking about this for a very long time and, in fact, conceived it at the very depths of Amazon's troubles during the first dot-com bust. So he's really believed this stuff and invested in it for a long time. Do we know? So is the not to do we know an end game there? Is it just is it continuing to be this passion play towards trying to build factories in space? Or I, I'm trying to remember what the. I think the I think I think honestly it's it's a, such a long term project that the endpoint might be passing it on to his kids or to to another generation of dreamers because you know he I think he's been fairly upfront that he's not going to get there in his lifetime you know that this is phase one of a multi decade or generational project to create entrepreneurship in in space and to lower the cost of getting to space so. This is all, you know, a sort of vision for the future that he he himself doesn't even think he'll witness. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that'll be, I suppose that would be a bigger success than figuring out how to sell everything online. And if we can get our Amazon Prime packages in in orbit, then he'll have completed both, uh, both dreams. That's his singularity moment right there. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you so much, Brad. This has been really fun. Really enjoyed hearing your input on here. Okay, no problem. No problem. I enjoyed Thanks a lot, thanks, Brad. Thanks for asking me, guys. All right. Bye. Uh, okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this Behind the Idea. As a reminder, we have three more podcasts on Amazon coming, with our next one focusing more on the financial statement and what that means for the company. Subscribe to Behind the Idea on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Libsyn. We would love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts especially. Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com with questions, feedback, complaints, suggestions, or requests for future episodes. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Idea.